This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Amen. Amen. It's amazing to be here with you guys tonight. It's been a while since I've preached in the evening service. So it's great to be with you guys. Thank you for being here on your long weekend. I truly believe that God is going to bless you, um, not because you're here, but because he's a good God. Amen? Um, the, tonight, or well, just this year, we've been talking about standing. <clears throat> Sorry, this, this is the first time that I'm preaching with this thing, so I keep on wanting to talk this way with the mic on this side. Um, but this year we've been, we've been exploring the, the, well, the Lord's given us a word to stand and to stand strong in Him. In the past couple of weeks in the evening service, uh, Sias and Pastor Jan have been uh, kind of exploring the topic of what it means to be a laborer. And I thought that I'd just kind of jump on their wave and I'd kind of combine the two. So... We're going to stand, but in standing, we're going to move towards brokenness, and we're going to unpack what that means. But yeah, I've just this, this past week, um, I've just realized that we as Christians, we can't be passive about the way that we follow God. We can't be passive and just think that as we just go on and go on and go on, that, that everything's going to be fine. This week, I, it was just... I. Um, I'm one of those guys, like, the super spiritual stuff freaks me out a bit. Um, I've been on missions, I've seen it all, but it still freaks me out a bit. Um, But this week, I just so experienced the accusation of the enemy over my life, coming at my relationship with God, coming at my relationship with the church, and with even my family, the close people around me. And... um, I just realized again this week in my daily devotionals as I was reading through Matthew, Matthew 7 at the end, it it talks about, um, Jesus says, if you hear these words of mine and you do them, you're like a wise man and you build your house upon the rock, which is obviously Christ. And when the winds come and the rain comes and the flood comes, you'll be able to stand. And I was just so encouraged by it to realize that we, we cannot be passive about the way that we follow God. We have to continually build our houses on the rock. And I want to encourage you to go read Matthew. Sorry, is it giving a bit of feedback? Um, go and read Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus gives us very practical ways of uh, what it means to build a house upon the rock. Um, But we have to understand that there's a war for our affections. There's a war for our attention and that we have to follow Christ with everything that we have. I want to read for us out of Matthew Matthew 8. We're just going to cover the messages coming out of four verses and we're going to look at the rest of Scripture to kind of fill in with it. But if you'd look with me to Matthew 8, Verse 1 to 4. It says, When he came down from the mountain, 
they've just preached the Sermon on the Mount and the crowd is in awe and they say that they haven't seen someone preach with authority like this. And then we pick up in verse 1, he says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for your presence, Lord, in worship. Father, that it's so tangible. Lord, we just come confess tonight once again that you are real. You are real to us. We worship a real God. Father, and we pray tonight that you have your way, that your kingdom come here in the service, Lord. Father, as these words go forward and go forth into our ears and into our hearts, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you make it something, produce fruit in us, God. That's what we desire tonight, produce fruit in us. And as we live our lives, people may see that we are followers of Christ, Lord. So we just consecrate this time to you. We say, have your way. Everybody says, amen. All right, so I'm gonna just start just three places of brokenness that I've kind of seen, and it's just the way that I like to do things, if you've ever heard me preach, is so leading up to a sermon, I have a lot of thoughts and scriptures and God speaks to me and I have a lot of stuff that goes on in the background and then I have to put it into a couple of slides and package it into a message. And, and sometimes I'm not so good with that if I don't explain wh where my head has been at or where my heart has been at, or what God has been sharing with me. So I'm just going to kind of lay the foundation for us, and we're going to build up towards where I think God wants to take us tonight. Is everybody good with that? Okay, three places of brokenness, very quickly. It's, the first one is, is our brokenness as humans, as fallen people. Um, it's not going to be on the slides, but it's, it's our brokenness, which leads to us or that shows that we have an absolute need to be reconciled to the Father, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The second place of, or the second type of brokenness that I see in Scripture is Christ's brokenness. Christ's brokenness on the cross, that He was the one who paid it all for us, that He was the one who paid the greatest price, and He became the ultimate scapegoat for us so that we may have eternal life so that we don't have to be broken, completely um, separated from God forever. And the third one is the brokenness of the world around us. We have to realize that we live in a, in a fallen world, and this fallen world truly needs the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, and the whole Ephesians basically talks about it, that when the church of Christ comes together and we come with our gifts and we come with our personalities and our character 
and we all work together, we're being built up in love. And when we're being built up in love, there's, there's a maturity and there's a fullness. We display the fullness of Christ in the world around us. And we need to know this. We need to know that the world is broken, but not only that the world is broken, but that the world is in need of the body of Christ that is coming together. Okay. So that's just kind of what's a little bit of what's been going on in my head. And I was reading, from reading Matthew 7, where he finishes the Sermon of the Mount, and then going into Matthew 8, I realized that for me personally, we oftentimes, especially in the West, especially in our culture, we tend to get very theoretical about things. We tend to know a lot of things. And uh, I can just imagine, or I actually pictured myself listening to Jesus on the Sermon on of the Mount. And he gives this long, I don't, even, I don't even want to know how many days he preached on it, but he gives this amazing teaching of how to live in Christ, how to be a follower of Christ, how to stand strong when the rain and the wind and the floods come. And he gives us this, this sermon. I can imagine me sitting there and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And I go home and I think about it, continue, and I just think about it and I think about it and I don't really get moved to action. And this is a little bit of why I've shared Matthew 7 and, and the Sermon of the Mount is because we see that the first thing that Jesus does when he's done preaching is he goes down and he goes to minister. He goes to, to reach out towards people. And... Um, for us, what this means is that we can sit here in church, and I must say, I, I truly believe that our church has some of the best teaching and some of the best preaching um, that you will find. I've spoken to some of my friends that have left the country or moved to other places, and you know, some of them have maybe been a bit critical or maybe a bit like, you know, we need more of this in the church or we need more of that. And then they go away from this place. They go away from Shofar Stellenbosch and they just tell me, man, appreciate what you have there. Appreciate the teaching and the preaching, the community, the fellowship. Appreciate it because it is, it's, it's something that is very scarce in the world that we live in. But that we take this that happens here and we don't, it, it can't stay here. It has to move from here out, out of those doors and it has to become practical for us to actually live it out, to live out what we learned. Even if you sit here week after week and you take one principle from the sermons, I want to encourage you, go and apply it in your life. Go and pray, go and ask God, show me how to apply the things that I've learned in church, in small group, in Bible school. How can I apply it in my life? Because we can, we can only give what we've received. And this, is, this leads me to the question of, do you believe that God can use you? If you sit still for a moment and you think, and you're really honest with yourself, do you think that God wants to use you in your workplace, in your classroom, in your sports team, in your family? Do you believe that God wants to use you? Do you believe that he can use you? Because we're sitting here, it's great. We have an upward and an inward focus. We worship God and God comes to do things in us 
but we have to see that there's an outward focus. And this outward focus is two hands, where the one is community and fellowship. The one is where we come together as believers and we fellowship and we exhort and encourage one another. But the other hand is where we reach out to those that don't know Christ. And I remember there was a time in my second year where the church was going through, uh, I can't remember exactly what, we, like, what the topic was, for instance, but uh, I remember it was a lot to do with compassion, having compassion for the people around you, having compassion for your neighbor, and something that I heard a lot in prayer meetings, in sermons, during words that were given is, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. And I never understood it. Well, I was like, I'm not really sure what this means until I started understanding, okay, like, Lord, show me what are the things in this world, show me the things that are around me that upset you, that, that, that break your heart, that make you sad, that, that affect you. And I was like, okay, this seems like quite a good thing to pray because I want to, I want to know what's going on in God's heart. So ask for him to show me what's on his heart and what he's doing, where he's moving. And I started praying. And for probably about three weeks, I prayed every day, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Come and show me the things around me, in my classrooms, in my sports teams, in my um, in my family, show me the things that breaks your heart. I want to have compassion for the people around me. And man, I, I, honestly, I didn't actually believe that God was really going to come and do it. I was just praying. It. I thought it was going to be great. I thought it was going to be amazing. For the next two months, I couldn't eat lunch in the Nielsi. I couldn't go to town. I struggled to attend my my sports. I, I played hockey for Marty's. I, I struggled to to pitch up for my hockey practices, um, not because of ill discipline, but just because my heart was breaking for the people around me because God truly came to show me the brokenness around me. The way that guys were talking about in my classroom and in my team, how they were talking about sleeping with girls and just the emptiness in it. The first time that I'd ever seen so much emptiness in someone proclaiming to be happy the way that people were talking about drinking and getting so drunk that they couldn't even remember anything the previous, from the previous night and celebrating it as if it was a status thing. I started crying. I couldn't, I couldn't go to the Nielsi to have lunch because I was just literally crying every day for the people around me. And I must say it was an, it was an amazing time of understanding something of God's heart that how much he cares for the people of this world. If you didn't know it yet, God has grace, not only for the church, but for the whole entire world. If God didn't have grace for the world, then it would only be the church left. It's God's grace that causes everybody to have breath every morning, whether they believe in him or not. It's a common grace that he's given to all of us. But my heart was, was so broken for what was breaking on he, what, what, what broke God's heart. But one thing that I, looking back at that time, one thing that I didn't do was I never moved towards that brokenness, which I regret. I never, I never, I, 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 in a sense, I prayed for the people, but I never reached out. I never asked 
people that were, their parents were going through a divorce. I never asked them, how is it going? Can I pray for you? I never asked them just for a coffee, just to say, hey man, I'm here for you. I know that this is tough. I can't even think what you're going through. And I never moved towards the brokenness, and that's something that I, that I regret now. But the Lord, in pre- preparation for this, gave me a statement that I believe to be true, and it, and it, and it is that true brokenness always demands a response if you're a Christian. True brokenness always demands a response if you are a Christian. And I think it's evident that, you know, I don't have this, and I, and I want you to understand this, that I don't have this figured out. I, I'm working through it, and I believe that it's a, it's a life-long journey of figuring out what it means to move towards brokenness and to stretch out our hands towards brokenness. And I bet you that there's people in this, in this congregation right now that are so much better at moving towards brokenness than what I am, I can guarantee you. But I can tell you that I'm committed to moving towards brokenness. And I believe that's God's invitation for us tonight as well. But more than that is I have a strong conviction that this is a word from God for us as a church that we need to move towards brokenness. So I want to read that scripture again uh, because I think we're going to get into this piece now, the scripture now. It says, when he came down from the mountain... Great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So this is where we're going to get stuck in a bit, and we're going to get into the scripture, and we're going to unpack it a bit, and we're going to look at what, what was Matthew saying in, in the gospel, and what is the act of Jesus actually telling us in this piece, and kind of look at the motivation um, of Matthew writing it. So I want us to just look at the, the question that this guy poses to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And it's interesting to me that he asks Jesus, not if he can heal him, but asks him if he will heal him. This guy comes to Jesus and he's certain, because he's he's probably heard of Jesus before the miracles that he's done, this authority that he preached with, and he's coming down now, he's probably heard of him before. And he He's certain that Jesus can heal him. But what he's not certain about if Jesus will heal him. And we're going to look at this, um, why he thought this way as we go on. But just first, I want, to, I want us to look at Jesus' response. I think it's on the next slide. As Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. His response is something like this. He's like, most certainly, brother, not only am I willing to, not only can I heal you, but I'm also willing. And 
We have to understand he, this guy has leprosy, so he has a skin disease. And no one wants to come close to him. And if we think, you know, just what happens to us as humans, especially married couples here, can, can think what happens to us as humans when we're deprived of human touch, of affection, when we're outcast in society. It's just not good for us. And our quality of life drops. I mean, if you think of a, a prisoner, you know, he's already in prison, he's already in bad circumstances, and when he disbehaves, the thing that they do is they put him in solitary confinement. And people go crazy in solitary confinement. So this is kind of what this guy's going through. He's an outcast of society. And not only does Jesus come to him and say, hey man, I can and I'm willing to heal you, but he even stretches out his hand and touches him. And he says, be healed. And there's something significant about this because Jesus is willing to go, not only like be like, be healed, like from a distance, he actually moves towards it and he touches him and he says, be healed. And, of the, and, and just on the face of it, if we had to stop there, we can, take, we can take a message from that right there and we can say Jesus is good and he's compassionate. He moves towards those that are broken. He moves towards those that are in pain and need healing um, and that Jesus is just amazing. And that today, um, that Jesus cares for us and that he moves towards us and heals us and gives us acceptance. And we could stop right there and we could leave and we would have a great message. But I believe that Matthew has something a bit more, a bit deeper, something that's cutting to the heart more than that. So I want to ask us another question is, why did Matthew choose to tell us this story as the first healing that Jesus does when he comes down from the mountain? I mean, don't you think that maybe a resurrection would have been like a bit more dramatic or healing someone that's blind, you know, his eyes open or even casting out a demon would be something that's more dramatic or even more influential in a sense. So why did Matthew tell us this story? And I think the place to start with is uh, this guy's question. is to say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And that word clean is interesting that he uses it. Um, I'm a bit geeky when it comes to the Bible. I like Hebrew and Greek words. Um, it makes the Bible interesting for me. But I've, I wondered why he used the word clean. Because there's a perfectly good Hebrew and Greek word for heal. But he doesn't use it. He doesn't use the Hebrew or the Greek. He uses the word clean. Now, of course, he wants this guy to, of course, this guy wants to be healed. But he's asking for something deeper. And this is what we're going to explore a bit what this word clean means. So hold on um, for just a moment. We're going to visit our favorite books of the Bible just for a moment, Leviticus and Numbers. You know, we've all read through them with a joy in our heart. Amen. <laughs> um, it's just going to be, I think it's five verses out of those two books. 
So don't, don't get lost. Don't hear Leviticus and Numbers and wander off in your mind. Stay with me because it's going to all make sense. It's going to all come together um, in the next few moments. But just before that, just a brief history of Israel and the people of Israel that in the beginning with Adam and Eve, everything was perfect, but we as humans messed it up and created chaos in the world through sin. Then God goes and he chooses Abraham and Abraham's family as a vehicle through which he's going to bring restoration to this perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had. Fast forward a bit, and this family, which is now Israel, finds themselves as slaves in Egypt to a terrible Pharaoh who treats them terribly. Now, we know the story of Moses and the ten plagues and the exodus out of Egypt. And they go out of Egypt and they meet at Mount Sinai. And this is kind of where we're going to um, where we're going to take it or go from is that they, the, the whole nation of Israel is at Mount Sinai and Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments. God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And in this process of restoring Israel or humanity back to right relationship with God, he places his personal presence right in the middle of the people of Israel. So that's just like a brief history. Okay, so now stay with me. Leviticus 11, verse 45. Are you ready? Not, not so ready. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to take a sip of water. Now I'm also ready. Okay. You're going to like this one. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And that word holy means to be unique, to be set apart for a specific purpose. Remember, we're looking at this word clean. And an, and an analogy to explain uh, holy is something like an operating room in a hospital. You get there, it's clean, it's spotless, there's... You know, it's been scrubbed down. There's nothing wrong with it. So let me quickly ask a question. Who's ever been in a hospital? Okay, most of you should have. Most of us would be born in a hospital. Okay? Not everybody necessarily, but most of us. Who, who's ever been in an operating room? Okay, a few less hands. So, there's a bit more hands than what I thought would go up. But, but we see that there's a difference between the hospital, and the operating room. And the reason is that the operating room is unique. It's set apart for a specific purpose, for people under, a certain, under certain circumstances. Like, I wouldn't go into the operating room if I had flu. But because I broke my collarbone last year, I had to go into the operating room and they had to put metal in me. Um, now my wife calls me Iron Man. Okay, so what is, what is an, so something, so we could in a sense say that the operating room is holy because it's unique and it's set apart for a specific purpose. Not everybody just goes into the operating room, right? The same thing for the doctor. The doctor doesn't just go and 
Fluffy, his son's dog, died, and he goes and buries the dog. He doesn't go straight from burying the dog and waltz into the operating room without cleaning himself or without taking the necessary measures and do the operation, right? It's unique. It's set apart for something specific. So what is an operating room set apart for? Um, it's for surgery, and this is, I just covered that the surgeon actually needs to go through certain rituals, certain things to clean his hands, clean his body, so that he can be in the right condition to do the operation. But an uh, operating room is also meant to improve the quality of life. Okay, so now that we have an idea, and something that's also, it's, it's like the sun, the sun is holy, in a sense, it's set apart, it's unique. You know, we know it's there, but the closer we get to it, the more we feel the effects of it. Okay, now that we have this concept of holy, the tabernacle, God's presence, he puts in the middle of the people, right in the middle of the people. And there's a definite list of things in this time. Now, one thing that I want you to remember as well is we live in the West in 2019 at this point in time. When we travel to other countries, we kind of are excited to see their culture or the way that they do things. Um, even though it's different to the way that we do things, we're excited to see it and we're open to it. Or if you go to someone's house and they say, uh, take off your shoes before you come into the house. You know, it, it might be weird for you, but it, because you're visiting them, it's the way that they do things. You take off your shoe and your shoes, rather than, and you... Um, and you go into the house. Now, this is the same thing when we travel to the Israelites way back when, is that they had a certain culture. They had a certain way of doing things. So it might be weird for us, but it's the way that they did things. Okay. So there's a definite list of things that made you unclean. If you were in Israel, there was a definite list of things that made you unclean. And this is where we're going to get to our second favorite book of the Bible, Numbers. Numbers 5, verse 1 to 4. Okay. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. So on the next slide, there's just a picture of um, what it looked like. Uh, can we just have that picture? There we go. So that's basically how it looked like. That big afgebakende um, area. I don't know what that is in English. Um, the marked area with the walls, that's the tabernacle, okay? And the priests went in there to go and represent the nation of Israel, and then around them you can see the little tents that are drawn, and that's the nation of Israel. So in that scripture, it says there's three things that make you unclean, and that say because you're unclean, you have to leave the camp. You have to go outside of the camp. You can't be inside anymore. It's a defiling skin disease, so something like leprosy. A discharge, which is usually a sexual discharge. 
or ceremonially unclean. So you've went to go and bury your, your father or your mother or someone in the family and you've been in contact with a dead body. And just to get things straight is that if you went outside, if you were deemed as unclean, it didn't mean that you were in sin. Not at all. It just meant that you were unclean and that you had to go outside the camp to clean yourself again. What would be sin, though, is if you were unclean and you waltzed into the presence of God, into the tabernacle, into that little area there with that tent. If you waltzed in there, that would be sin. Okay. So, to, to kind of summarize this all, and this is now when we're going to, we, we've, we've built the foundation and now we're really going to get to what, what Jesus, um, what Matthew is saying here in Matthew 8. Is God's tabernacle or his actual personal presence is placed in the middle of Israel, as you can see there. And it is holy and should stay undefiled. Therefore, whenever you do something that defiles you, you need to go outside the city until you're cleansed again and can return. So the mindset that we see of the people and that of, you know, of the people is that don't defile that which is holy. If you're unclean, you remove yourself from the holy space because if you're defiled or unclean and you're in the holy space, you're going to contaminate the holy space. Everybody with me? Okay. And this is the same idea that as a surgeon, I don't come into the operating room having just buried my dog and I'm still dirty and I've got maybe blood on my hands or whatever. I don't come into the operating room like that because I'm going to defile the holy space. So, as we go forward, remember this. Remember this mindset that the people had. And we're going to jump forward about 700 years to the time of Isaiah. And we're going to read out of Isaiah 6. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And if we can just for a moment, close our eyes and we remember the, the history lesson that we just had of the, the unclean mustn't go into the holy place and you're Isaiah and you get this vision and you're in the throne room of God and you know you shouldn't be there because your culture says that you're from a people of unclean lips. You have unclean lips and all of a sudden, you just, 
you realize that, oh my goodness, woe is me, I am lost. His words are literally, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm not supposed to be here, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he's just like, oh my goodness, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm going to die right now. And he sees this weird thing with six wings flying to go and pick up a coal with tongs and flying at him with a coal. And he's like, this is it. It's over for me. There I go. I'm not supposed to be here. The Lord is going to wipe me out. This coal is going to incinerate me. And he's kind of like waiting for it, shaking, waiting to be incinerated. And the next moment, exactly the opposite happens. The coal touches his mouth. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, Leviticus and Numbers and the culture of the Israelites says that death and uncleanliness is contagious. And therefore, the unclean cannot come into the clean or the holy space. Isaiah's dream or his vision that he sees flips this completely on its head. And it says, the holy is not defiled by the unclean, but instead holiness is contagious and brings life to places that there shouldn't be life. See, when we look at the way that Jesus comes down the mountain, everybody around him has the same idea that unclean, being unholy, that defiles the holy space. And Jesus comes and he does something completely countercultural. The Messiah comes and he not only heals someone, but he actually reaches out to this guy's hurt and his pain and he, and he touches him and he says, be healed. And this guy is healed. And it's so much more significant when you realize what Jesus was doing, when you realize the culture that they were living in and what is going on in their mind. So what does this mean for us? We mess up time and time again. And when we mess up, we think that God is ashamed of us. We believe that we're not good enough. We believe that we are unworthy. And we end up avoiding prayer. We end up avoiding church and small group. We end up avoiding reading the word of God and worshiping him. We end up avoiding everything that has to do with God because we think that I first have to go and clean myself before I can come into the presence of God. But I want to tell you, church, tonight God is not threatened by your sin or your uncleanliness. You might say in your mind that, but God, we, we serve a holy God and he won't tolerate sin in his presence and therefore I have to go and clean myself. I have to first go and make myself right and presentable before I come to him. And on one hand, it's amazing that you think that way because you have, a, an, you have a, a concept of the fear of God, that you serve a holy God. But on the other hand, it's just a half truth. Because if we look at what we just read in Isaiah, that God can tolerate sin in his presence, but he doesn't just stand there and do nothing. He moves towards the sin, towards the uncleanliness. He moves towards it with such immense passion and intensity that Isaiah is immediately transformed from an unclean vessel to a clean vessel. 
And he does the same with us. That as we come into his presence, just like, God, here I am. I'm completely broken. I have failed in every area. God comes with passion, intensity, and love, and he, sit me and he makes it clean. But he requires a response of holy living then after this. And the, we read Isaiah 1, Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 7, and verse 8. This is the next slide, I think. It says, And I heard of the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And this is what I was talking about, that oftentimes we're so comfortable with being in church and experiencing God move at us with intensity and passion, with His love to clean us and to forgive us, to redeem us and to break the chains over us. But so many times we find ourselves not willing to go from that place. You see, right after he makes Isaiah clean, he says, who will then go for us? And Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. There's just one more picture that I want to share with you guys. Not a picture on the screen, but a, a vision in Ezekiel 47. And this vision that Ezekiel has is of water that flows from the temple of God. And it forms a stream and the stream forms a river and the river then flows into the ocean and the river actually starts making the ocean fresh water. And this river gives life everywhere that it is. There is fish and there's animals drinking and there's trees on the sides and the trees bear fruit in all four seasons and it's just this amazing picture. Go and read it. It's unbelievable, this picture that he sketches. And God was showing Ezekiel how his presence will go forth to bring life. And John catches onto this in John 7, and he describes us as the temples of God, with streams of living water flowing out of us to bring life and goodness and kindness and mercy, that which comes from God, that it flows through us to everywhere we are, our surrounding areas, everything we touch, is the, it should be the presence of God flowing out from, our, from us in our classrooms, our families, our workplaces, everywhere. So it's a twofold thing of realizing that we can come just as we are, that we can come in our broken state and that Jesus and God moves towards it to heal us, to cleanse us, to deliver us Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.